Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome back to Lonely Cello. I am, as ever, your host, Emily Wright, and I am here with... Wendy Velasco. Oh my God, Wendy Velasco. Um, This is somebody who is like a rock star in the Los Angeles world of like string pedagogy when I was growing up there. Um, And so I guess my first question is kind of, who are you? What are you doing? What's some of your background? Where did you go to school? All that good stuff. Um, okay, well, let's see. I did I started the cello when I was eight and I was a Suzuki kid, but not like a really traditional Suzuki kid. But um, I guess what happened is my brother started the violin, even though he's younger than me, and I went, I want to do that. And my mom said, mm, let's choose a different instrument. <laughs> and so she took me to a Suzuki cello class, and I thought, oh, I can sit down all the time when I'm playing. This is good. I like this. Um, and I quickly just decided I really liked music. I'd hum music as I'd go to school, all the Suzuki songs, and I'd do the Suzuki stuff. Um, but quickly, my teachers were realizing, or the people in the community were realizing that I actually practiced a little bit, or I had a tiger mom. Uh, I don't mm. know if, can can you be a tiger mom and not be Asian? I think so, yes. Right? I think so, absolutely. Absolutely. So my mom was a tiger mom. And so they they found me some different teachers. And um, I eventually went to a program in Toronto, a conservatory program, which was really fantastic. And I'd spend my whole weekend there and we would have ear training, we'd have theory, we'd have music history, I'd have orchestra, I'd have chamber music. And I'd just spend my whole day there. And there was a group of us that would just, you know, go up on the bus, we'd spend the day and then we'd come back and... So I really felt a, a community right there. Um, I think it speaks so, highly of whoever was teaching your brother that you would see his process and want to be a part of it because a lot of people, right, have a kind of miserable onboarding and they kind of stick with it despite the fact that it's hard. So I love right. I love the fact that he seemed to be like enjoying it and progressing enough to inspire you. My brother was the smart one of the family. <laughs> Oh, I think my mom was wise in picking him first. She was just like, oh, he's coordinated. He's smart. He's going to do well at this. And then the funny story came out later that the reason she wanted him to play the violin was because she wanted to learn the violin. And they had this program where you had to learn along with it. So my brother was the poor guinea pig for my mom to learn the violin. But... um my mom found out very quickly that she could not do as well as him. And so (laughs) it went by the wayside very quickly. And and then she became the supporter of the ones that could do it, I guess. And um, so my brother was part of all those programs with me too. And he, he actually stayed playing the violin until about high school. (laughs) And then, you know, boy stuff got in the way. He wanted to be in sports. He just, it wasn't cool enough or whatever. Not quite sure, but um, now he's a scientist making lots of money. So, um, but yeah, no, uh, I have four siblings. Well, there's four of us Mm -hmm. and I'm the oldest. And uh, my younger sister, who's 10 years younger than me, plays cello as well. 
and oh, nice. my brother played violin until my other brother played piano a little bit but wasn't you know that into it so the two boys are um scientists or computer people and um the two gals were all the cellists and the musicians so um, but yeah I love it. So when you, um, so you ended up in Toronto and then I feel like um, we were just talking, you went to USC for your, is it undergrad or master's or all well, that stuff? Actually, I started in New York. I started at SUNY Stony Brook, ah. Bernie Greenhouse. And I'm not sure exactly what happened, but at some point in the second year, um, he suddenly retired. Mm. Not gonna, not gonna be teaching there anymore, and so they offered I could stay with Tim Eddy, but I took a lesson and um, I felt like there was too much talking. I, I, I'm, I want to be playing all the time, and I don't know. We just got into the. I think I was playing Shostakovich Sonata at the time, talking mm. about how the last movement had this, and I'm just like, want to, want to do that? Just let me play. <laughs> and so I had heard about Eleanor Schoenfeld, and I always felt like, um. You know, I wasn't, I didn't think I was super talented. I just worked hard. And I I always felt like um, I needed more to my technique, even though I always thought in terms of music, like I was like, I want it to be this way. I want it to be that way. But I felt like my technique needed more work. And everyone said she's like the pro at getting people to play really well technically. So I, um, I went down to New York City to do a little audition for her in her hotel room. I guess she was going around scouting yeah. for more students. So I came in as a junior to USC. And then because I had only been there for two years, because I loved her, um, I figured out a way to stay one more year. So I, I extend, like, I'm the kind of person, I'm going to get that degree done in four years. But I was basically done, but I just, like, hobbled through another year and I took all kinds of weird classes like I took a, a finance class and a, you know like I just went around a parent uh parental influences on the development of a child and I just like I I had finished all my coursework but I wanted to stay so I I just found interesting courses and finished up a third year so let yeah, me so actually quick ask like a super cello nerdy question so um I had the kind of um, big fish in a small pond syndrome. So like I was one of the better cellists of my age in Riverside. But then of course, as soon as I got to like ask the California competitions, I got shellacked by all the people who were from, you know, the more, you know, prestigious teachers. Fair enough. I, uh, that was exactly my feeling. Like when I was in Canada, I was a big fish, you know, um, I would do these competitions. I was in a string quartet. We had gone to the nationals. We won the nationals. I right. was in a trio. I was like the big fish. And then I went out there and I went, mm, I'm not a big fish anymore. I'm barely making it through here at USC that I'm always last stand, you know, it's like that kind of thing. So yeah, no, I had the misfortune of being the same age as both Jonathan Caroli and Will Bailey. <laughs> so I'm oh, just like, goodness. I just got totally shellacked. But at the yeah, same you're, time, you're in was... generation under me, definitely. I'm I'm a, a different generation. But I was with Tim, uh, Timothy Landauer was the big one. Tim and, Landauer, massive. Yeah, and then I'm trying to remember the name of this other guy, and I have such a funny story to tell about him. Uh, and I I I just won't remember his name because for some reason I he's not I don't hear of him anymore. But um, 
he he was one of Eleanor Schoenfeld's big students. He had been there with her since he was really little. And now it's college and he was in college and he had gone and he had performed with the New York Phil. And so there was a picture of her and him and Zubin Maida, and it was on her wall. And then one year, um, I guess, you know, he'd just been studying with her for forever. Right. And he and uh, Lynn Harrell came and he wanted to study with somebody different. Right. And so he made the switch. And so the picture came down from her office wall and, you know, okay. But then the next year the picture returned, but it had been sliced <laughs> so that it was only her and Sue had made up. <laughs> it was so funny. I mean, I loved Eleanor Schoenfeld. She was wonderful. I not only went to um, USC, but at, at the summer music camps were actually in Canada that time that she was going to. And so I would go to those two. And um, so I had a full dose of Eleanor Schoenfeld and everything about her. So uh, yeah. Exactly. So, so then, so I missed Lynn Harrell by a year. And even though I went to Cal State Northridge because of the earthquake and some other things with like CSUN faculty, I actually studied with Ron Leonard from the kind of last three years of high school. And then I took uh, some subsidized lessons with him technically at Cal State Northridge, but I was going, you know, down to mm -hmm. USC and, and continuing my studies with him. And the thing, like, I really noticed, like, a lot of physical differences between Ron Leonard's students and Eleanor Schoenfeld's students. And then it was even more apparent when I was in AYS with Mainly Meta, because it was mostly Ron and Eleanor's students who kind of populated this. And so here's my question for you. Um, one thing that I always noticed about Schoenfeld students is that like there would, if there was a trill that would naturally occur be between like three and four, Ron Leonard students are like, I'm just going to do this with one and two. I'm going to do a shift. And I noticed all the Schoenfeld students had like beautiful, lovely, long, relaxed looking oh, trills. That, and... that was not me. I, I was moving that to the first finger. <laughs> No way. To this day, I will, I will, I'm probably playing or shifting around way more than any other cellist in the world because I'll avoid my fourth finger. Um, I have very small hands. So um, I think I'm, on one of your podcasts, you were talking about Tim Liu and Tim Liu yeah. um, was sitting next to me in an uh, orchestra thing and we were comparing hands and literally the palm of his hand was the size of my whole hand. And also Tim's fingertips are made like perfectly for the cello. Like I've never seen a hand that would have been more like engineered. I don't know if it's better to have such big hands all the time, but it's definitely a challenge sometimes for me. Like just going between two and four in first position, that's that's the limit of my hand spread right there. So, you know, you have to learn to do different things. And so I would almost always you know find a fingering that would work a little bit better for me yeah so matt cooker once I use my thumb a lot more yeah exactly matt cooker once accused me of having quote unquote byzantine fingerings because we'd be in we played a couple studio gigs and he used to be one of my teachers and i would always like try to sit with him or suzy katayama in the back you know where nobody was looking at us and i would be doing these crazy fingerings and he's like what it what is that and i'm like yeah. i I am trying to fight against tendonitis. So if I can do this in thumb position rather than like a massive extension over and over, it is what I'm going to do. Well, that's okay. So at least that's not like, um, cause I did always kind of wonder if I should have, cause I auditioned for both Eleanor and Ron 
and part of me wonders, it's like, am I really, did that hobble my, my left-hand technique? Cause like Ron Leonard students, like at least in the nineties and early aughts, I felt like we used to just beat the shit out of the cello. Like we played the cello, like we beat it into submission, which is what I needed. I used to play in a kind of apologetic kind of, you know, up oh, towards really? the okay. fingerboard. And he was like, no, we're going to make a sound. We're going to make this big robust sound and you're going to do it from, you know, gravity. And he did all these wonderful fixes that are right. foundational. But I was always wondering, it's like, no, we didn't I do a delicate touch. Different stuff. I think for me, Eleanor Schoenfeld's best quality was teaching how to practice mm. and that I felt like I didn't know before yeah um I you know all these teachers would tell me something that it needed to sound different or whatever but I didn't know how to do it consistently and so she did that and then also um I think maybe just me learn trying to learn more about how to practice and as a result how to teach uh, one of the classes that we took at USC was a pedagogy class. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm so old. <laughs> that, but that was back at the very last days of Gabo Raito. Oh, yeah. And Gabo Raito was there and he got very sick. And so um, he was supposed to teach the class one semester and then Eleanor would teach one semester. So instead they brought in their education department um, person who was Dr. Chelland. And it, honestly, it was the best thing that could have happened because both of these teachers would be like, Eleanor Schoenfeld would be like, here's a 500 etudes you can give to your students. But he was just like, here's how you teach a kid how to hold the bow. Here's how to get kids doing this. And I'm like, that's going to be teaching. That's what I need to know, right? No, nope, I'm not getting any student who's doing proper etudes, right? Right. That's not happening. I really need to know how to get them, like, to this day, it's hard to get kids to hold a bow really well, you know, like, it's just a challenging part. And so um, I actually liked it so much that I did an independent study with him on music education and just the different philosophies that were out there and, you know, just kind of getting my head around how I might want to teach. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I think that was in that extra year that I did when I was just like looking for stuff to fill up my right. day and um so it was really helpful I read books by Phyllis Young and Paul Roland Roland and, yep yeah all these people and then just sort of put together what I would consider my method like what would I want to do when I was teaching and um so yeah, yeah I would have felt like I would that teaching would be my calling in cello playing but it didn't really turn out that way at the beginning like mm. at the beginning I was I'm I was a gig musician you know yeah I went around played weddings played every orchestra this I you know I had a few contracts I had you, know, you get out of school and you win a couple of auditions and then you don't win them again <laughs> so, anyway so yeah so I would just go from orchestra orchestra and you can't have a teaching studio when you do that you know right your students want to have their lessons after school and you're already in the car driving 50 to 100 miles to your next gig or whatever it is. So I just didn't teach a lot at the beginning. And it wasn't until my kids got to high school and they um, were in a high school of the arts and it needed, they needed to pay a little bit more <laughs> for that extra part. And that college was coming up and I just was like, I need a little bit steadier income 
you know, and uh, this driving around and not knowing if you have a gig next week or not, whatever. It, it just was too much. So I started doing more steady teaching and turning down the um, the driving around. And I kept a, a contract. And so I juggle everybody for one of them. But um, mostly I just try and teach and I love it. It's so much better than driving around LA with a different orchestra each week. You know, yeah. and, and it seems like half the time people don't really have time to make it fantastic because there's such budget month, you know, budget issues and you don't get enough rehearsal time and it's all put on you to practice and um, ahead of time and come in there perfect and um, and then just put it together and just hope that it's going to be as good as it can be on your two or three rehearsals, you know. Yeah, for a while, I think I was actually almost like an adrenaline junkie because I was never a first call player, mostly because I was, by the time I finished school, people kind of knew, oh, Emily is injured or she's injury prone, right? So like, so, but what's interesting is that doesn't mean I didn't get called. It just doesn't mean that I I wasn't the first call. So what I would instead get is I would be a second or third call player in absolute emergencies. So they're like, <laughs> so they, you know, I'd get a call and I'd be in my apartment in Reseda and they're like, uh, this guy uh, actually got in a car accident and we need you down at Sony and Culver City as fast as possible. And so like, and that was something that would happen like a couple times a month. And so it was like, wonderful to be like, I can get there. I can save the day. I learned finally how to sight read and how to comport myself professionally. And all of that was really exciting. And then when I moved to the East coast to kind of do like really get serious about the education piece, I was sort of like, is, so my phone isn't going to ring and I don't have to like drive to New York city and like (laughs) do this like crazy, but it, it was actually like quite, um, there was an addictive quality to it, to feeling like, I would just have to come in and do my very best for like two hours. And then, right. and then the well, check would be three hundred dollars <laughs> I have a funny story about last minute or funny, I guess. Yeah. So my son plays saxophone and he's very good. He, he won a, uh, he's doing his doctorate at Northwestern and nice. yeah. Uh, in classical saxophone, he also knows jazz and he, he won a competition to make a record. So anyway, so he's well known. He's doing a lot of stuff. And this summer we would, we actually went on a, our first vacation forever, right? It's like our 30th anniversary. And we went to Italy and we get this call that he has been called to play with the Chicago Symphony because they had some piece that they didn't realize needed saxophone. And so he was the first person to pick up the phone and, and like say yes, right? So he gets this, he goes to the first rehearsal and then he gets appendicitis. And he goes and has to go into the hospital and get his appendix removed. And so he can't play anymore. So he, he had to quit. And it's just like such an up and then such a down. <laughs> but the good news is he will be playing with Chicago Symphony this weekend because they didn't realize they needed five saxophones for American in Paris, the movie version, instead of the three. So he will get his chance again this weekend. Knock on wood. Knock on wood here. I am knocking on a piece of wood furniture here. Hopefully there's nothing that can stop that now. So yeah, it's just a crazy world, isn't it? You know, this stuff. So yeah. yeah. Um also just to have one more like small anecdote 
um, so because of this world, and especially when you're at college, right, they know that college students are good musicians, but that we're also dying for money and dying for exposure. So like we would do, we would contort ourselves into all kinds of different positions, right? I remember, I remember one of my first gigs when I was at Northridge, I was a freshman. I was 17 years old because I like went to school a year early. Um, and like one of my gigs was legitimately at like a strip club kind of, but I'm like, it's, it's $200. I'm just going to keep my, you know, keep my head down and just work on this. So I remember though, um, some, somebody, uh, recognized that I was quite, um, gullible. Definitely. I was extremely <laughs> sheltered. And so I remember that this bass player and drummer lived across the street from us in Northridge. And so I got a call. And it was like this really low voice guy. And he claimed to be Kevin Eubanks from like, I think it was like the Tonight Show band. And he's oh, like, no. I'm going to send a limo to come pick you up. And we we need you tonight to play with. And it was somebody who I like right. loved. And I was like, oh. and then I, I got in my black and I was waiting outside and I waited for like two and a half hours. And oh. finally they were like laughing at me and they had oh, me like pictures mean. of me. It was oh. extremely mean. Um, and in the end, at first I thought that there was a lesson for me in it. And actually, I sincerely hope that there's a lesson for those other people. Because oh, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I was just trying to go to a gig. <laughs> right. So well, I, I have another funny going to a gig story. So I was still in college too and doing some teaching and I sent my resume out to a million contractors. And I guess this guy needed somebody and he called me and it was gonna be my first gig at Capitol Records. Oh, yes. Oh, excited, right? Like, I don't know that anybody can hire out Capitol Records, but I think this must be the big thing, right? And I had been teaching and I uh, had driven from some really far place and I was there way too early and I didn't want to get there too early and look too anxious or too eager, or whatever. So I stopped at a Jack in the Box and mm -hmm. I, and I go and I um, get my meal I'm still trying to kill time, right? So I, um, I go back and I, um, and I go back to I go back to my car, and realize that I have locked my keys in my car. So my cello's in the car in the <gasps> trunk. My, my car is here. My keys are in the car. I'm not in the car. And Capitol Records is only like 15 minutes away, but I can't get there, <laughs> right? So I'm panicking and I go back into the jack in the box and I'm just like, can somebody call AAA? I need to get to, I need to get to Capitol Records. I have this session in 30 minutes and blah, blah. And the, they, they get, to their credit, they actually get AAA on the, on the phone and AAA says, sorry, it'll be 40 minutes. Right. So some patron goes, I can get into your car right now. And he did. <laughs> He had his little slim jam. He broke into my car. <laughs> and I was able to get to the session on time. So that is such that, good luck. No, no, that's LA, right? You know you're gonna have somebody there who can break into your car. Yeah. It was an older car. It was like a Chevy Nova or something like that. So maybe they couldn't have broken into my car today, but back then it did work so exactly yeah. it's a what is it slim gyms and bolt cutters two things that either the best people have or the worst people have but when you need them you don't ask 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, so surprisingly, guys, we're actually not here to talk about the good old days in Los Angeles, but now you have more information about what it's like to to come up in this insane town of huge size, lots of opportunity, and all kinds of crazy things that can happen. But today we're actually here talking about something that I've actually associated Wendy with now for like the better part of a decade, which is an emphasis on understanding and kind of disseminating the work of female composers. Um, and so I'm curious, like when did when did you first start thinking about this is something that needs to be done. Right. Well, uh, uh, actually, it had been not on my ra radar at all. And um, I was teaching, and I guess one of the music teachers associations had a women's festival where they would have your students play pieces by women composers. And I'd sort of gone, I don't know any. I don't don't really have anything for my students. Like, not going to do it. And I didn't play radio, it at all. Yeah. The, uh, on the radio, there was this really lovely piece, and it was by a woman composer. I went, well, that's really nice. I didn't know women wrote nice pieces. I should do some more research. So I went on the Facebook page, and I said, hey, can somebody recommend some pieces that my students can play by women composers? And the very first comment was, why would you want to do that? Don't you want them to play good music? And I was shocked. I mean, I I think it was 2017, 2018. I can't. And somebody remember. would just say that out loud with their name attached to it. Right. Well, you know, it is a Facebook page. There are international people there. Maybe this person was from the middle of I don't know, wherever. So, and and he wasn't the only one. There were a few others that made similar type comments, but there it did generate a lot of action so a lot of people jumped on they had ideas of pieces that I could try and everything and I guess the gist of it was that I decided that as a community cellists need to know more about pieces by women composers yeah and so my way to kind of get into it all was to make a database and I just I figured out if I found out about a piece by a woman composer and you could find a recording of it, and you could find the sheet music. It went on the database. I made no judgment about what the quality of the piece. Right. Everybody has different tastes, you know. Like something I really love might be something somebody else hated. So I just, I just went out there, and if I heard of a woman composer, I looked, I looked the name up and put cello beside it, and then just, just went through and found out everything I could, and um. I did find a lot of pieces. A lot of them were modern, you know. Yeah. They, they, they weren't older pieces, and and some of the older pieces weren't fabulous. But I also started um, listening to some pieces, and in listening to the pieces, I I found a piece by Marie J. L. Um, for cello, and this recording was lovely. And then I tried, you know, to be on my database, you have to find the sheet music, right? So I tried to find the sheet music, couldn't find it. Nothing was out there. Um, I tried to contact the people who had made the recording. They were in Br Brussels or whatever. They didn't reply. Um, but I had a friend in Europe and she um, put the information into her Google search 
in French or whatever. And she found the uh, sheet music or, or the, she found it in a library in France. And she contacted them for me and they said, we'd happy to have you make a, an arrangement of it or whatever. You just have to mention our name. I'm like, great. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I want to play this piece. I'm so naive. I think I'm going to get this music and I'm just going to put it on my stand and all I have to do is make it available for people. Well, that was not what it was like. The, um, every There were conflicting versions. So oh, yeah. the cello part was nothing like what was being played. What was What was being played was the cello line that was on the orchestral score. And the orchestral score, um, there were different versions for the third movement and, you know, two different ones and stuff like that. So it was quite a process to do it. But I was so determined. I loved this piece and everybody else is going to love it as soon as they hear it and have the opportunity to play it. So so I did it and I just went, OK, I'm putting it out there. So that sort of got me started a little bit. But I, I do disseminate my database a lot. And um, will yeah. I be able to link to that piece in the show notes? It's super easy to find. You oh, just great. Go, I mean, you can link if you want. But uh, the piece is by Marie JL and it's her cello concerto in F. And it is the first cello concerto that we know of written by a woman. And um, the the now I'm gonna forget the name of the guy who recorded it I think his wife is really interested in or his partner or whatever is really interested in women's music for cello and so I think that's why he got kind of into performing it with them um but uh and I think they have an edition out I put out an edition for cello and piano because who's gonna have a chance to play it with orchestra but um you know it's <laughs> right uh, I think it's a really neat piece because, um, you know, it's about the level of Saint-Saëns. You okay, have to be so... to to play it. But what it does bring to the student repertoire, even if you're never going to perform it as a professional, is that it has more elements that lead up to Dvorak. So there are a few octaves. There's some thirds, you know, like it, it has, you, when you do the, what do they call it? Burialage passage yes. in the Dvorak. It's got something like that too, that goes down by semitones and stuff like that. Or, do you know, I always forget the word burialage and I'm like skittering quasi sautier, but no, that's actually, yeah, there is an actual word for it and I should probably yeah. remember it. <laughs> so I actually wrote an article that's on Cello Bello about the concerto. Okay, so um, we're going to link to that. Yeah, and and so I, I used some examples from the piece so you can see you know how it's got lots of lovely melodies I mean it's not Dvorak shallow concerto you know whatever but um but it is very beautiful and lots of really neat elements in there to learn if you're not ready for Dvorak shallow concerto but it's very melodic like Dvorak so and also I do think it's important because if we're striving for equality it's not that any of us would say that women composers are better because there's a lot of extremely mediocre music actually even written by famous composers right like most of Mendelssohn mm -hmm. I'm like yeah no it's Schumann, true okay well, there's some great things absolutely right but if we're just it's trying to be number. like let's let's just figure out what this music is we, we should expect that there's lots of 
mediocre women music <laughs> being written, well, right? There's lots of mediocre but at everything. The same time, so yeah. They also were not allowed to really study. That's so right. I, I had this theory, oh, most of these women were pianists. And I started to look at all their biographies, and yes, they were. And my theory came out of the fact that I read Jane Austen novels, right? And all the women have to learn how to play the piano so they can entertain their families after dinner, right? So they became quite proficient at piano. How else is she going to get Colonel Brandon if she doesn't sing? Right, exactly. Come and, on. And also, what do you have to do all day? You can't get a job. You can't do any of these things so you can play the piano, right? Right. And so um, it's true. A lot of them were piano, but uh, one of them I was looking up. And she had wanted to study at the Paris Conservatory. Women were not allowed to study at the Paris Conservatory. So right away, you have to be rich because now you have to pay extra for private, private tutor from these people to be able to actually have some lessons in it. And who is it? Um, shoot, the the Boston composer, American. Uh, not not John Adams. No. No, 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 no. Woman, woman, woman. Oh, oh. Oh, um, uh, 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 Not Amy uh, Beach. No, yes, Amy Beach. Ah. So, yeah, um, oh no, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> that's okay. If it comes back to you, uh, yeah, exactly. That, that's absolutely fine. But also, I do think <laughs> that there was a thing also where it was considered inappropriate for a woman to be alone with a man for such a long time that it's like, oh, even, yeah. even if you had the money, if you didn't have the, infrastructure chaperone. of, of chaperones that right so it's just sort of like you there's so many layers where you could be disqualified from even entering into learning you know what I think women weren't even allowed to just walk down the street alone they had to yeah. be a company and so you know you couldn't get to the lesson you know so there's all these things that were in the way of women actually becoming very good at it and so um but I really believe that you know, when I was growing up, there was a lot of talk about, well, women could be any profession, we could be doctors, we could do this. And, but everybody would be like, but I see doctors as men. And so the big push was to show women as doctors, maybe on a TV show, right. or to mention these things. And so I feel like we need to see women, young girls and boys need to see that women have composed, can compose. And so I think it's really important to try and find some opportunities for your students to see that there's a woman who has written a piece of music before and too. You don't even realize how ingrained some of these ideas are. So I was, um, you know, I was definitely raised to be like Sally Ride, right? And like all these amazing women doing amazing things. And then I didn't realize how limited the narrative was until I saw the first um, of the new Star Wars movies and Leia was like a general and women were the warriors. And I remember leaving crying because I was like, I thought that science fiction was not for me because I didn't see myself as a slave princess, which is how Leia was portrayed in right, the earlier right. films. And all the other jobs were being done by men. And even though I I have lots of men as my heroes, like ton, like mm -hmm. I'm a jazz fan, right? So, so many of my heroes are like, you know, older black men from Harlem, which obviously I am not. But um, to see a woman in that position, I was, I started recognizing 
this like this side of myself that I was not like really given permission by our culture and our culture is pretty liberal. I use that term, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, it, with a, with a, a open, spoon of salt. Open to new ideas. Open right, to, more open to new ideas, but open I. Open to the ideas of feminism with a small F. Exactly. <laughs> right. 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 So, yeah. um, but yeah, I think it's, and I do think it's really good for, for boys also to, to see this, um, because in the end, most of us also who have any kind of success in our life are there because we're supported by other people. And so it's just the more people who understand what's possible. Like mm -hmm. I I've gotten so much support from men in my career and I've gotten a lot of support from women in my career. And I think it's just, if we all think that it's, if it's all possible, then it can be all of our responsibility. Right. Well, this, the other thing is that we all come out with like a blank slate and we sit there and we make generalizations based on what we see in our lives. That's right. So I've only seen that men can compose. I assume that they don't, that women don't. Right. Um, it's interesting when you were talking about maybe different composers for people to listen to. I started, I, I don't been very focused on cello plays this, right? Mm -hmm. And I, but I play a lot of symphonies. And so I was like, I wonder if women wrote any symphonies. I assume that women don't, right? They, they were in salons. They didn't song have cycles, that. right? They, they like their little piano pieces, maybe a little chamber piece. No orchestra was going to play it. Why would they ever have the experience to have actually have written a, um, a, a symphony? And I, because of all this women's movement, there are now pieces by women that were written 100, 200 years ago that have been recorded, like literally this last year. So um, I didn't know that there was a symphony by somebody named Louise Franck that was at the same time as Beethoven. And so I started listening to these pieces. I love them. I think her symphonies are wonderful, but getting them performed is getting, it's like, I don't know, pushing a stone up a hill. Because first of all, everybody's trying to be all, um, they want to get more modern music. Like for, for her music isn't original enough. It's too much like Beethoven. Why would we want to put her music on when we could put Beethoven on? We only have, we don't have a concert every weekend. We have a concert every month. And, um, so what is she that's different, right? And um, I think it's as lovely as a Beethoven symphony. Her, her She's got three symphonies. Um, and I personally love the first one. Uh, the third one is the one that everybody's kind of going, oh, you should hear the third symphony by Louise Farrank. And I would say it has more Mendelssohn influences mm -hmm. than the first one's more Beethoven. But all three of them are really wonderful. And um, then there's another symphony by, um, I guess she's Polish. I thought she was Russian. Um, and her name is, Gra I can't pronounce her first name, Grazina Basowicz. Okay. And she's much more modern. So it would be a little bit more like you're listening to Shostakovich a little bit. Um, or I would say it also has a little bit more John Williams, but she was before John Williams. So, right. But like, it's got that, it's very dense, uh, harmonically, um, very exciting music. And I love her. Uh, she has, I think she has four symphonies. I only have recordings of 
four and three. Um, but they, they also have these nice overtures that could be played. And I'm going to just be like, <sighs> I just can't get people to program them. You know, it's, that's the big challenge. Well, yeah. And so that's actually kind of what I was going to, going to ask you about. So like anytime an orchestra really does seem to say, do you know what? We, we're actually going to do an all-women program or, for instance, every single program, it's going to be, you know, a person of color or a woman composer or just, you know, somebody from a pool of people that we're not used to dipping into. Um, most of us celebrate and think, wow, what is this even going to sound like? And even if you hate it, I, I there's lots of music that I don't like, right? It's fine and I'm not going to complain yeah. about it. I'm just going to listen to other things. But there is this kind of steady drumbeat. And especially as the internet sort of turns into more and more of like a, a cesspool, right? Where like, I feel like good people don't even want to interact a lot of the time because it's, right, mm -hmm. you just get dragged down. But there's this idea that they'll say, uh, it's not enough, right? Being Being a woman is not a good enough reason. I, you know, if I wrote something, why should a woman go ahead of me just because she's a woman? And there's this kind of, regressive attitudes so we're like seen as you know diversity hires or that it's just sort of you know tokenism and I'm just kind of wondering like about the current climate both in the way that you see programs right. are being um, organized but also if you know anything about contemporary female composers if you have any idea kind of right what their yeah, path is so like it's a big question it is a big question and there's a couple of different parts to it. Yeah. So um, as to the token hires and stuff like that, you know, I'm old enough, older than you to know that that was what was said about doctors and whatever. And the women got in there and then they showed that they could do it and actually do it just as well. Yeah. They're and, not lady doctors, right? They're, yeah, they're doctors. Right? Yeah. And so, so maybe that token hire is needed, you know, at this mm. point. Right. So because obviously that the woman is going to do a good job. Right. My concern. A little bit is that when they do add the woman composer, they are only allowing five minutes on the program for it. So mm. I brought to a past conductor, I brought the Amy Beach and I said, I love this piece. It's wonderful. Here's the CD. Listen to it. His response was, it's 50 minutes long. I can't devote 50 minutes of the People program, program Mueller. <laughs> I know, but it was it was just going to be a token thing for him. So he didn't want something that was going to take up so much time. Um, I play in an orchestra that regularly programs women's music, but the pieces are short. And because we have budget concerns all the time, the pieces are for strings. And when you listen to a piece for a string orchestra, it cannot compare to a symphony orchestra. There's just more colors available. There's the big brass, whatever. So like, why can't we get some of these pieces? And, and sometimes they're really modern for our audiences. And so they get the impression the women write this weird music, right? And and that was a little bit the problem I was coming up with in finding pieces for my cello students, because bringing this back, 
all I wanted to do was have my students be exposed to music by women composers. And there were lots of women writing pieces, but they wanted to write something epic for Yo-Yo Ma with 500 double stops and everything. And I'm like, I can barely play this piece. How is my student going to be able to play this piece? Yeah, this is a duet. <laughs> right. I just want something that my little kid in Suzuki book two can play along to. It doesn't need to be a masterpiece. And they, the women who are now composing didn't want to write that piece, you know? And so I, and I kept putting it out there. And so anyway, there are some nice pieces now. So you had, um alva um alba madonna fabulous yeah and i had found out a few years ago her pieces uh, it's a cello thing yeah and i i I heard on i don't know you probably have them now but on your podcast you were waiting for them in the mail but um i've had them and i've been using with my students and they do really enjoy them and uh, so here's here's the problem is that we come in string playing we come from a suzuki based world and Suzuki was brilliant. So 50 years ago, he goes, I know how to make a nice progression of songs that you just put that book in front of your students and turn the page and it's all predetermined for you. But he put it together 50 years ago. So there aren't any of the the new modern rhythms that we're playing. There's not um, pieces by women composers. So anybody who wants to be responsible has to figure out how to put those pieces into that. And wedge them in your progression, right? Right. And nobody's bought, you know, they bought the Suzuki book. You have to tell them to buy another book, right? I mean, that's all really challenging. So, um, but I was sort of motivated to do it more than others. And I have found that one of the great ways to put it in is that um, when it's recital time, I don't want, I got a whole bunch of kids who all start at the same time and they're all playing Dvorak humoresque, right? I can't have four Dvorak humoresques on my recital. So I went around and found, started finding pieces by women composers to give to some other students and stuff like that. So, and no one sits there and go, oh, this is a lesser piece. They enjoy it just as much, you know? So I've, I've gradually been diverting away from an only Suzuki diet <laughs> in my teaching. And I, I think my students are enjoying it too. So, yeah. Yeah. I, that actually sort of gave me this brainwave. Can you imagine like a really thick book of like, here's, here's like a, an appendix or like a, not an appendix, like a, an addition to all of the Suzuki books. And like, you could just kind of, you know, if, right. I don't know, if Maytime won, it's it's like right. at the beginning, of, and then like one A could be this other piece, right? And they're like, so this might fit in between these two things, right? Right, that would be really good, I think, to right. have. And you you know about my project that I've I've done with Barbara Aranz. Yes, and Barbara Aranz is uh, somebody I have never met either. <laughs> I mean, she lives yes. in Germany, and we met through the magic of Facebook, and she just was like, I have some pieces that I wrote for my kids when they were playing cello as kids students and I just I want them to have a cellist look at them see if the bowings work see if there's if they are you know something that is marketable and I went I'll do it and so we put out a like a little book where I just helped her out with some fingerings and stuff and it didn't sell well like she just 
you, you like people have that Suzuki progression. They don't, they don't know where to put it in, you know? Um, and she was sort of saying, I, I'm having trouble getting people to, to buy these. They, they buy my piano books. They buy my, oh, wow. books, right. Like she's a big pianist. She, she's a piano pedagogical composer. Um, and so I just said, well, maybe they're not seeing the value of how it could fit in and teach something different than what they're teaching because her music is um, a little bit more modern rhythmically, right? So Which it's is so helpful, a, especially for string right. players, right? We're notoriously bad with rhythm. Well, yes, because we wait way too long to introduce new rhythms. And um, so like, as, as I play more modern music in just my wedding gigs, I'm playing pop music. I don't play any classical music at a wedding anymore, right? And as so I have to learn all these poppy rhythms. And then even in orchestra, we're doing a lot more contemporary music. So I have to learn all these changes of tempo, of, uh, of time signatures and stuff. And so I was like, well, maybe people just need to see the value in your pieces and how they can help their students grow, right? I mean, Okay, it's not going to be Dvorak's cello concerto that you're playing here when you're playing the, um, you know, you're playing this piece called um the, I'm blanking on another one about a a grumpy a grumpy somebody another, grumpy. Well, who, who among us gorilla, has not been a grumpy right? somebody or other? <laughs> yeah, grumpy gorilla, right? But um, so one of the things she does a lot, she has a lot of jazz rhythms in her. Thing. so yeah i noticed she introduced play. swing time in one of them as well yeah well actually in like three or four of them there's mm -hmm. some swing so in the so in the first book she she didn't have any really lower level swing things and i said can we find something for our first book that isn't so this was i think the grumpy girl it was originally written for viola mm -hmm. and, and it had been picked by the um uh, british somebody one of the british things where they choose repertoire to put oh probably the rbsm yeah right so they had picked the grumpy gorilla for that for their viola book or whatever and so so we added it to the first book of these two books so um the idea was that i would put together a little exercise at the beginning of each one to show the kind of the value in learning this piece and how it helped some student rhythmically so each piece has a little um couple of exercises to help the student play those rhythms because we haven't taught them that much to kids you know um sometimes the hardest part in teaching rhythms to a student is the rests right yep. so 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 there's that element and then when I got into the second book I kind of felt like oh, I've kind of done some of these rhythm things so maybe I could do something else and um, in one of the pieces, there's some thumb position. So I introduced my ideas of how I teach thumb position. And um, it's a little bit like how Rick Mooney teaches thumb positions. But I had figured it out before I saw Rick Mooney's things. Mm -hmm. And so basically, when I was trying to learn how to play the cello and kind of get the idea, um, I really needed to know what pattern my fingers were in. That's like, right. The organized shifting, right? The space, right? right. Right. Are, are you going to have a whole step, half step? Are you going to have half step, whole step? And so I just gave them numbers. I'm just like, this is pattern one. This is pattern two. This is pattern three. When I got into thumb position, 
I just kept the same numbers and said, if you bring your first finger back to the thumb, it's called a lowered one. It's a lowered two, a lowered three. And um, so it, one of the exercises in book two just takes a little tune and has those in the three patterns or the, well, there's oh, one, two, three, four, four patterns. Um, so that you play this little tune in the four patterns and you can kind of see how it is. And I make my students tell me, even when they're playing the right notes, what finger pattern are you in, right? Because I feel like you have to know the structure of what your hand is in. We do know that in the first positions, right? We we just don't always say it. We're going one, three, four. We know it's, yeah, whatever. But yeah, so as I the music gets more difficult, it's actually so important to be extremely deliberate about, but you don't want to get something right by accident <laughs> because yeah. then you can't repeat it. Right. And, and so I found that once I, me myself could organize those ideas in my head, I could play the music so much better. Uh, you yeah. had a podcast about popper and oh, yeah. that would be the thing for me in poppers. I just had to tell myself which hand pattern am I in? Which hand pattern am I in? Oh, and then he just goes down by Sammy toes. I just keep the same hand pattern. I don't need to know the note name. <laughs> and actually, this is a good reminder that all etudes are written as love letters to students to help you problem solve. Even though they seem like I, I really tried getting out as, as many popper etudes as possible. I think Ron only got me to play like 10 of them. And he was very much like, learn all oh, the I, I swerved them. I did even fewer than that, let me tell you. I just, I made it a project one summer after I graduated and I just went, I'm gonna learn every one of them um, long before COVID. So it was it was a summer project when I didn't yeah. have as much work. So, but uh, yeah. yeah, so, so yeah, so that, that's basically what the, the book is, is it's, it's pieces that can be interspersed into a Suzuki repertoire, but can also, um, help students learn more complex rhythms, more modern rhythms. There's a lot of three against two. So I give some ideas on how to, um, I think it's like bubblegum popcorn, bubblegum pop. I don't know, something like that. I can't remember what it is. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And what is the name of it? We will link to it in the show oh, notes, yeah, but just yeah. so they so have it. It's called a musical odyssey um, for cello and piano. So, um, and you have to look up Barbara Aran's name. You can't look up mine. She has it on um, Amazon. So Get the link to is, Amazon. Everything, it's so amazing. And Amazon, they you don't have to pre-publish a book. They will print it up when it's ordered. Yeah, so that's, that's how my book used to be. It's so nice because you don't have to shell out tons of money up front to be able to do it. Um, and so um, she sells it just as a cello book and then just as a piano book. So you don't have to make your student buy the cello and piano together. And then the other thing is that one of the things that I do in my teaching is I always try and play along with my students with a harmony part. So they're learning ensemble skills. Right. Ensemble skills keeps the rhythm flowing, all of this stuff. So um, we realized pretty early, pretty quickly that we could do the same thing for this book. And so she just went through all her piano parts and she made a duet out of every single one of them. Oh, so I love the that. Part. So she's done it. Like I would, I would have just taken the piano part and played along with the bass part. Sure. But she's actually made some of them more 
um, like, you know, you get the melody in the line instead of this. And, and so I would look at it and say, oh, that's not very playable and stuff. And so we, we would work through it. Um, and um, so we have a duet book out and it, the duet book's more expensive because it is all of the pieces. Right. And I wouldn't recommend it for a student because it's so, first of all, it, you know, we didn't really lay it out with all the fingerings and bowing so much for them. Um, so it's a little more carefully put together. Um, and my preparation pages that I made for each of them are mm -hmm. in the duet book. So a teacher could buy the duet book, see the preparation pages, and then they could tell the student, oh, you know, buy book one and we're going to do this. Or, you know, so that then you can just work on the pieces that work for the student, you know? Yeah, no, that sounds perfect. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, the idea is just to get some some more um, some more rhythms out there for students and, and just to show them what, you know, what we can do that isn't 20th, uh, 19th century and 18th century, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, no, I think it's a better... Um it's a better introduction for how things actually are. I mean, I have lots of students in community orchestras and they are playing John Williams, if not things that are more modern, but John Williams, he hits you with every possible, like Star Wars, God help me. Every single time I played that somewhere in LA, I worked so hard counting those. It, it, so it is hard. a hard one. But actually I had a student show up who's literally like in her, in his second year of playing the cello and they have an Aladdin song and maybe the Aladdin song works for the poor viol the violinists who all can play it the way they've heard the song. Right. But when you're the cellist and you're playing some random notes and a four here and there, and there are ties across, uh, across beats. <laughs> There's lots of 16. Sometimes it's, it varies from, I'm looking at this one thinking, who's going to get their second year student to play this? And this particular student is strong rhythmically and he was almost getting it. But I have other students where I'm like, I could work on this for a month with them. They're not going to get that rhythm. Because students don't really think with a pulse a lot of times. Well, they're they so busy playing the instrument. Right. They they know that they have a quarter note and they have two eighth notes and they know that the two eighth notes, but they don't get how that all puts together. And so, you know, like a lot of times what I do for my students is I make these kinds of prep pages, even for the Suzuki things. So when like you get to Hunter's chorus, mm -hmm. da, da, da. And then they get to twice as fast, right? So um, I I really have a little exercise on pulse before they play that piece, and I so like these prep pages that I put together are kind of what I do just in my teaching for all of my pieces. When I started to learn what mistakes the students didn't or what lessons the students didn't know yet. And so I would give them a lesson ahead of the piece on what was going to show up in there. And so that's kind of what I did here is just, here's a lesson before you get to this piece so that you're a little bit better prepared to, to and, play. And since piece. so many of our listeners are adult learners who really don't have, I mean, sometimes they have like their kids are also learning instruments, but we just want to acknowledge here that actually counting is difficult. That's why we make such a big song and dance out of like having to learn it. It, it wasn't easy for any of us. 
So just, just know that we are doing these things in solidarity with you. No, I mean, I, I've always struggled with rhythm. That has always been a challenge, right? So I, I also would not get the sense of pulse. I think I'd play along with the metronome, whatever, but, um, and then when we got to these more complex rhythms in orchestra and in just my gigging, I didn't have any context for it because I didn't play a piece ever. I like would have that. to listen to the person next to me. Even if I auditioned and got principal, I would sometimes lean on my second chair to be like, what is this? Right. Sound well, like? So I actually had a lesson from my son. So mm-hmm. my son is a doctorate in saxophone and saxophone never had any 18th century music written for it. So all of their music is crazy, right? It's all these rhythms. Right. And I was just like, I, I need to learn how to do this better. And I looked up online and I found a book for mixed meters and it turned out to be sort of a jazzy book, but it was good actually, because I, I, I really was forced to not see the same finger patterns that were I'm used to. So it was a, it was a challenge just note wise as well, but he actually happened to be home from Chicago that day. And he gave me a few lesson tips with my metronome on how to play in mixed meters, right? Because mixed meter, you're here in three, eight, and then you're in 11, eight. What do you do, right? Right. And how do you keep that going? And so he showed me some tricks on the metronome with, you know, like how you use the um, strong beat. Yes. So like, for example, six, eight on my metronome doesn't happen to, it goes one, two, one, two. To, you don't hear the the inner pulse right but if i put six four and put a little click on the one and the four then i'm hearing the inner pulse and so he showed me how to do that on my metronome i guess i'm just, i'm old i need help with technology <laughs> but it was such a game changer for me just that little bit of a lesson on how to think of inner pulses and stuff like that and to fill in beats. And I've been using it a lot with my students too. And I feel like they've really improved on their rhythm as well. So, you know, yeah, I, was yeah. a, I was a jazz minor at uh, Northridge. They like cobbled it together for me because I was just so uh-huh. like on fire for it. And uh, if anybody else is looking for another recommendation, um, the Louis Belson books are really excellent. It's like, I think it's like rhythm reading in common time. And then there's rhythm reading in, I think, I think they call it complex time. Those I'm books are so good. I did buy a, like a rhythm re- reading and stuff. And they're just on a single line, right? It's just a Yeah, rhythm, it's on a right? single line. And that was yes. like super helpful for me. It was for me too. And so that would probably be a first step before buying one of these jazzy books. Like That's so right. sometimes they do them for bass clef instruments. And so- right. Um, they're not necessarily for cello <laughs> they're for a bass clef instrument and so I you know that's what I got and um I, I wanted something with a play-along track because mm-hmm. um you know if you're wrong you don't know you're wrong you want to know right. track will give you some information that will say oh you know I, I feel like you can't learn to sight read without being in a group right yes. because you have to have that feedback and you have to have somebody that's going to continue on when you, you have to have the also the, note, right you right? have to have the incentive not to go back and and pick at whatever you think you missed right like you have to be mm-hmm. I, yeah so that's another thing i always tell my students like 
you have to learn to count because even if you get the right note, if it's the right note at the wrong time, it is still the wrong note. So it's better to actually play the wrong note and be with the band. Just go, right. just keep going. Yep. Right. Exactly. So actually there was this really good uh, sight reading book that I found It's called right at sight. And it mm. comes with a play along track and the play along track actually doesn't play the um, music that you play. It plays an accompaniment. Nice. So, yeah, it's really nice. Um, so the book, there were five parts to it, and I got the first three, and then I was Oof. trying to find four and five. I don't know if they ever, maybe they never actually got transcribed into cello. They might have been originally violin, I'm not sure. But I can't find them, and they're out of print, and I'm so sad. So if anybody has right at sight four or five, please contact me. I really, yes. really like this series for sight reading. It's fabulous. It's so well organized. They give you keys. They they have a little lesson. On, like They go track. You do um, uh, the time signature rhythm and then key signature. And I've changed time signature to, uh, to uh, tempo because mm -hmm. I feel like students go, oh, the time signature is three, four. But then they have not processed in their mind one, two, three, one, two, three. Right. So they have to tell me the tempo before they before they can start to play. And then we find the rhythms in that tempo and then they can add the notes to it and look at the key signature. So tempo, I think, is a better word than time signature. Mm -hmm. You know, so at least that's what I found in trying to teach um, sight reading. Yeah, absolutely. So many students are I'm like, OK, count yourself a measure in and they'll go one, two, three, four. Yeah, and it's, a right. it's like they, those things need to actually be related. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Isn't that true? Right. Yeah, so true. it is. Yeah. But they're, it's well intentioned. Um, so, oh, of no. course, I you mean, knew this is going you know, this is going to happen. Two cello teacher nerds are going to get going down the cello teacher nerd route. What what else do you expect from me? I want to so make true. sure. No, don't be sorry. First of all, if they really hate it, they can fast forward until we're starting to talk about women again. But it doesn't right. matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my house. We do what we want here, Wendy. Right. We can do whatever exactly. we want. Um, I just wanted to actually just touch upon something, though, um, that's I've always been really curious about. Um, because when I was a kid, the first thing I learned on piano after, you know, the Faber, you know, playing things with your thumbs, it was the Anna Magdalena notebook, right? That was kind of like the thing. And then I don't know, in the past 10 years, I've heard multiple people kind of say offhandedly that there is there is some thought that maybe certain of the suites were actually penned by her. And a lot of people say, well, she was more of a scribe for for Bach. But then in the pieces that we know are attributed to her, her, to her, like she's not entirely derivative of her husband's note choices and like styles. And I'm just wondering, just. Yeah, I'm just her... not enough of a musicologist. To no. You know, I just, I just figure that we should go with who we really know are women composers but if there's some musicologists out there that want to try and figure that out that I mean it's true we don't have anything in his handwriting on that it could be but okay uh, fair, fair enough so no. people who are more authoritative than me have said no so all right I, I, I put it in the category of Shakespeare there are people who think Shakespeare didn't write his plays but mm. 
we need to give Shakespeare his credit. You know? Fair enough. Okay. So the journey <laughs> continues. Maybe I'll have somebody on. Maybe I'll, I should do a, an all Bach episode, right? We should, I should find out um, about this stuff. So thinking about making some recommendations for our listeners, kind of entry points. Um, like I've been listening to um, a lot of Amy Beach, her, um, especially the the four pieces that include Dreaming, because one of our, our mm-hmm. students at Tamarack Arts has been playing it, and that's so beautiful. Um, right. Listening to Florence Price after her symphony was named, I think, one of the like 10 best symphonies ever written. And of course, the comments on Instagram were a complete garbage fire about that. Right. Um, well, actually, like the 10 best, they definitely made an effort to be diverse. And I appreciate that, you know, so is it going to be your 10 best? Maybe it's your 10 best, but it's not somebody else's 10 best. This is a subjective field. And so I do appreciate that they tried to find somebody who was African-American, somebody, a woman. I think Louise Frank made that list as well. And yeah. so, right. And so, but her third symphony was on the list and I liked the first. So we are all so personal in our tastes. So I know your question is what um, the listeners should pay attention to. Yeah, just if there's some huge long list, right? right? So my question for you is, are you talking about as cellist what they should play or are you talking about just general classical music listeners? Am I allowed to say, can we have like, two or three of each just because yeah, we've got yeah, people yeah, who are you know quite early in their journey and so I want to make sure that yeah, they've yeah, got stuff to listen to so one of the things that I've put out on Facebook are like lists of here's um if you really like Bach here's a piece by a woman composer to try if you really like Debussy here's a piece by a woman composer for you to listen to so I'd be happy to send you those and you could do a link to them. I don't have them on a website anywhere. So I don't know exactly how you would link it exactly. But um, or if there's something put it up on, I could actually put it up on my website and be like, this is the list that that Wendy Velasco created. And then it'll be someplace permanently where people can go and also know who created it. Right. So and to be honest, over the just in the time period from when I started to now, there's more. Right. So, you know, at Alva wrote that great book of pieces for young cellists and, you know, Barbara Rons has put this piece for young cellists. Uh, Diane Chaplin has put together some pieces. Her pieces are a little bit more in the classical Suzuki thing, but she does have a a couple of fun things that are like um, she does a 12 bar blues that's sort of fun for the kids, you Mm. know. So she's got some stuff as well. Um, so, and I anticipate there's going to be more. There's um, a cellist named Dejana Wallace, and she wrote a rhapsody for cello and orchestra. And um, it was on Facebook. Somebody posted a video of it. But she's going to be writing a piece um, and part of this uh, composer's consortium where they get people donate money to commission pieces for student level pieces. Um, the few that we did before were a little bit more advanced than anything my students personally play. But, um, you know, but so I was trying to encourage Dejana, who's a, um, a Facebook friend, don't know her in person. I was like, do something a little lower level <laughs> so, so my students can play it too, you know. But um, 
but yeah, so there's there's stuff out there. And and so I can make some recommendations on pieces at different levels, like Suzuki book one. Do you want to play? They heard some pieces. Uh, Suzuki book two. I could do that list as well. So I could put together some lists for people to get started. Sure. And then what are you listening to kind of most recently? What are what are some some pieces? Well, in, in your encouragement, I started to look up symphonies. And so I am obsessed with Louise Franks. Okay. And and then this other lady, uh, Graciela Basowicz. I'm obsessed with their symphonies. <gasps> I love them. I, you know, because you hear Beethoven's symphonies so many times, you know them. You're like, okay, I've heard it. I want to hear something else. And But it's still a similar style. So it's something new, right? It's, it's not like... Um, you know, we did some stuff with Jesse Montgomery and it's nice, but it's, it's a different style. You know, um, we, we did some stuff with, um, oh, what was the name of that other, um, Jennifer Higdon. Oh yeah. You know, it's just not my style. Right. Right. She's got a, a lot of following people love her, mm -hmm. but it's not my personal style you know, and oh my goodness, that was one of the things where I just went, I need to really learn to count when I had to play Jennifer Higdon, right? Like, oh my goodness me, there's so many subdivisions of the this and the tie there and the, ah, so yeah. Um, yeah, I always so feel bad. I, list for you. I, I don't write that much music. Hopefully that will change shortly because I used to write a whole lot more, but I remember when I would write um within a recording software environment where I didn't I wasn't responsible for notating because it was automatically getting notated that's when I would get some of the most bonkers rhythms and I'm like do you know what it is not worth that 64th note offset that's gonna go on the beat I'm just putting that <laughs> it is not worth doing that to anybody and maybe that wasn't really the intention anyway. You just played it that way a little bit, right? Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, who knows? But I just remember thinking, look, I wrote that and I could not play it back to myself. I think <laughs> maybe maybe simplicity is going to yeah, be better here. There's some people who put music arrangements out like that too that could use a little bit of fixing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that really a five plus four measure followed by a 132 measure? I don't think so. Probably not. But I managed to do that all the time. Um, so before we go, um, I'm just uh wanted to know how people can find you on Facebook. Are you open uh, on publicly? Yeah, absolutely. They can friend me. I'm not on Facebook as much because um, like you said, things got a little crazy. Um, you know, I feel like this last presidential election kind of opened up the idea that we can all say whatever we want and, and not have any consequences and, and everything like that. So, um, so I sort of have taken a break. I mostly kind of go on to promote my son or my daughter who is really good at acting and stuff. And, um, and sometimes to promote something that, or, you know, if I heard a great piece by a woman composer, I'll be like, sure. Oh, I play this. Um, so, you know, and one of the things that's really challenging about the pieces for women composers is that a lot of times they were never edited really well modernly, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll have something on IMSLP and it's not really edited. So it's not easy to just sit down and play it from that score. Um, sometimes you'll find that the piece is really expensive, 
you know, mm. like before Amazon, you had to make a bunch of copies and, you know, they made their 10 copies and they knew they were going to sell one. So that one had to be $40, right? So I would come up against that a lot. And um, so I'm really looking forward to a lot of um, the modern uh, way we can disseminate music. Yeah. So, Especially, I do love the idea behind IMSLP where it's like, look, if, mm -hmm. if you're going to perform this, then obviously we need to make sure that the people who are responsible for it get paid. But the idea that we're trying to just share things and expand the repertoire, mm -hmm. I think that that is tremendous. I, I don't know actually what I would have done the past kind of 10 years without that as a resource. Right. Well, so an, an example is uh, Ethel Smythe wrote two sonatas for cello and piano. And the A minor is on IMSLP. You can get that. But I actually found a recording of the C minor and I loved it. It starts out with a theme that sounds a little bit like the Arpeggioni sonata. So, nice. so, so it's got that beautiful da, 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 da. And then you don't have to play any of those fast hard notes. Right. So I was like, oh, I want to play that one. But I couldn't find it and until I found out it's in a library in, in England. But when I contacted the library, they're like, well, it'll be $60 for us to make it into a, like a um, PDF, whatever it is. And then you cannot play it anywhere or distribute it anywhere. It's like, what? I mean, the whole point is to make this available. To Music people. is for playing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And But because of. Uh, you know, sometimes the inheritors and stuff. So, you know, that was the neat thing about the JL is that her, whoever's got um, the rights to it or whatever, they just want her music played. So, um, you know, so, I mean, it just, the person is dead, right? Can we just get that music played? I think she would rather have her music played than somebody made some money. I, that's how I would feel. But so it is challenging sometimes to find these pieces and to pay for them. So. Right. But and that's, I think, really the best thing to close with, because you and probably a handful of other people are trying to make some sort of mm -hmm. database to make sure that when new things are discovered, that mm -hmm we can find them and then there's a place we can keep coming back to. We don't have to keep scouring and starting our searches from scratch. Right. So um, speaking of databases, there's also a more um, a better funded one for women and I guess, um, what do you call people? Diverse. Uh, yeah. Composers, uh, the Boulanger Initiative. Yes. Yes. So they actually have a, a staff and they put together stuff. And there's this a little bit more, I think, towards the orchestral world. Maybe I'm completely out of line with it. But they're doing other projects as well. So people who are interested in this should check that out as well. I think they've got some really neat projects coming up ahead. I've seen that they have some um, music education kind of tools to learn about women composers from the Baroque era. And I know they're going to want to do more in other eras as funding becomes available, you know. And so... Um, yeah, and they have out. a very they have a very active um, Instagram presence, and so I will link to that in the show notes sure. yeah. as well. Well, yeah, thank you for coming on and chatting about all oh, things sure. women composers and all things super cello nerdy. 
Yeah, yeah. I could talk forever about cello teaching, probably. Are you going to go to the ASTA conference? Uh, I'm on the fence. I Oh, come on. You have to go. It's going to be with the Suzuki Association this year. It is. And string, strings was talking about um, they want me to be there, but they don't want to pay me to be there. Oh, <laughs> so like... It costs me a lot of money to go there, too. It's expensive, I know, but I just geek out every time. I love it. I so. know you do kind of come back feeling quite full. So yeah. um, well, if any of our yeah, listeners I'm wants so to be a, with a new idea, so new ideas or yeah, better ways to think about old ideas. So if any of our listeners wants to uh, to be my patron and like book me a hotel <laughs> in, in it's not right? Right. Sorry. It's, it's in, in Knoxville, Louisville. Yeah, it's in Kentucky. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been there. So there you go. It's an excuse. Look out, Kentucky. That's right off for me. So there you go. <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming on until yeah, next time. All right. Sorry.